0: So good morning, as we continue now our journey through the book of Acts in the Bible, a book which gives us a view into the life of the very early church. We're trying to see what we can learn from this for today's church, for us in our current situation and circumstances. And we've seen how after his death and resurrection, Jesus told his disciples to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit which God had promised for them. We saw how the Holy Spirit came upon them in power for the express purpose of bearing witness to all that they had seen, witness to who Jesus was and what he was continuing to do through them. Then we saw how they completely devoted themselves to studying and internalising this teaching they had received from Jesus, experiencing the deep fellowship uh, that comes from them being united together through a sense of common and significant purpose and mission, and how they anchored all of this in the prayers. And then last week uh, we saw how their leader, Peter, going up to the temple healed a lame man in the name of Jesus. And this opened up a great opportunity for him to speak to the crowd that had gathered. He explained to them what was happening, what the implications for them would be and how they needed to respond. So as we pick up the story, let's just try to imagine that scene now. A large crowd had gathered. There was quite a commotion going on. What happens next? We ask. Well, we read on, and we had read to us earlier uh, those opening uh, verses of chapter four, uh, where we read that uh, as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard uh, and the Sadducees, some of the religious rulers of the day, came up to them. uh, And they were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection. From the dead. And so they laid hands on Peter and John and put them in jail. Now, I think our translations don't really give us a full sense of what was happening here. It it might be more accurate to say uh, that uh, the temple guard, the Sadducees, they, they burst, they pressed in upon them, they burst upon them, and they were vexed and annoyed. This wasn't a calm scene. And we might well ask ourselves, well, what were they so worked up about? After all, Peter and John had just healed this man. Well, it was the fact that the apostles were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, we read. So why were they so vexed annoyed about this well talk of resurrection was quite literally talk of revolution it was a direct challenge to the status quo to their power and authority here was a greater power and authority here was one who had true power over life and death itself God's kingdom was arriving and it was in direct opposition and challenge to the kingdoms of the world whether those be political, religious, or even our own personal little fiefdoms. If you, if I want to be in control, whether it be as here of the central institution that administered God's law and the sacrificial system that helped people get close to God, or whether it's perhaps closer to home, uh, simply at control of my own life, then this is not really good news. And perhaps we find it difficult to understand the strength, the vehemence of their reaction. After all, for the past 200 years in the Western world, people have laughed at resurrection, whether that of Jesus or that of anyone else. It's been ridiculed, dismissed. But I would argue it's still a dangerous yet glorious idea. That God is going to put everything right once and for all. He's going to restore all things, to turn the world the right way up at last. Sounds like good news. So what's the catch? Well, if we want to be a part of this, we have to do it God's way and not ours. And here lies the problem. We think that we know best and that we can solve many of our problems on our own. So this is the first aspect of the boldness of the early church, their proclamation. They proclaimed with great boldness the resurrection. They proclaimed who Jesus was, what he had done and what he was continuing to do. And what was the source uh, the, the the origin of this boldness. Well, I suggest it was the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus in their lives, in their thinking, in their speaking, in their action. The more they focused on the victory of the empty tomb, the more they focused on their experience of the resurrected Lord, the more they focused on the fire of his spirit burning within them, the more they sensed a new freedom. Freedom from self-centeredness, freedom from competitiveness, freedom from pride, and freedom from defensiveness. And they believed that what had happened to them could happen to everyone, and they longed to see it happen through them. And now, confronted by the rulers, elders, and scribes, we read that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he repeats his proclamation of the gospel and as before he doesn't pull his punches he basically tells his audience that they are the ones who have crucified god's anointed one the messiah whom god has subsequently raised from the dead and then he delivers his final blow when he says salvation is to be found in no one else They've blown their chance of salvation, of being rescued and brought into God's plan and purposes by their rejection of Jesus. Peter's words are not going to win them over. This is not the way we would make friends and influence people. And we see here that in just two or three sentences, Peter has put together a stunning theological argument. We haven't got time to dig into it today, but it's well worth exploring how this draws heavily on Psalm 118, one of the psalms which speaks of God's Messiah and applies it to the current situation. No wonder that the rulers, elders and scribes were, we read, amazed by what are described as uneducated and untrained men. What enables Peter to do this? Well, we read and we've seen that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit is a phrase that Luke uses several times throughout this book of Acts. We saw it a couple of weeks ago in chapter two. And the language points to a specific action. Something is done to Peter in the moment. And this contrasts with the idea of being full of the Holy Spirit. It's a different phrase, a different tense, it's continuous. It speaks to the continuous state of those who have given their lives to Christ. It begins when we become Christians. We are filled, however, with the Holy Spirit at specific times and for the specific purpose of proclaiming our witness to Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And they were filled over and over again so proclamation is the first aspect of the boldness of the early church and if that proclamation is the first uh, then god's uh, presence with them is the essential prerequisite as the council observed peter and john they began to recognize or more accurately they came to know That they have been with Jesus they had spent time with Jesus in his presence and now after his resurrection they continue to live their lives in the presence of God everything they do and say is declared to be in the name of Jesus and in their culture name signified the nature the personality the authority and the power of a person It was his character and essence. And in Hebrew thought uh, and in in the the Hebrew Bible, in the scriptures, uh, the name of God was always synonymous with his presence. And if we think back to the Gospels and look carefully, we can see that when Jesus healed or performed a miracle, he did not do it by invoking God's name. Because, of course, he was, he is the name. He was, he is Emmanuel, God with us. But now that authority and power which was in him has been delegated and entrusted to the apostles and to the church. By his name, through his presence, they were empowered and we are empowered to do what he had done during his earthly ministry. And we see too that their message is validated by the integrity of their lives. Peter and John can claim to be speaking in God's name because they have been living it out. Kingdom power, healing power has been evident in their lives. So not only is God's presence the catalyst for their boldness in proclaiming their witness to Jesus, but also God's presence is manifestly and unmistakably present in their lives and through the works that he does through them and as we read on we see that the council simply doesn't know what to do with them they're at a bit of a loss they couldn't deny what had happened the evidence was right there before their eyes and they had no real basis certainly no legitimate reason for punishing them and so it seems almost in a final act of desperation, they try to maintain uh, some sort of control, some sense, semblance of order over the situation by making a few threats and telling them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. This is a pivotal moment and the way in which Peter and John respond goes to the heart of the matter. We read that they answered Uh, And said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Would our answer be the same? Now, of course, we might not face antagonism or threats like this. More likely, We simply face ridicule or apathy. So perhaps we might choose to say nothing so as not to rock the boat, not to make others, or perhaps if we're honest ourselves, feel uncomfortable, upset or embarrassed. But Peter and John are released. So what happens next? Well, they go back to their friends. And they report to them all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And they pray. And prayer is the third place in which we see this boldness played out. They pray with boldness and confidence, not because they're more devout, but because they're rooting themselves in the ancient tradition of Scripture. They're finding their place in God's story and plan and understanding what is happening around them. They didn't pray, Lord, please cause them to die horribly or please stop them being so unpleasant. They didn't pray, Lord, let this persecution stop or even please convert the authorities so that your work can go forward, no rather, they quite simply prayed now, Lord, look upon their threats, let us go on speaking boldly, and will you continue to work powerfully? Now we were reminded earlier that we read last week in acts two twenty chapter two verse twenty four that the early church devoted themselves to the prayers and unfortunately many of our translations simply say prayers and for some reason omit the definite article the but the text says the prayers so it begs the question what were the prayers and i think here we get a glimpse we get to see as we see how they pray Firstly, they are fully convinced of the absolute sovereignty of God. Their faith was in the Lord and that the Lord was in charge of all things. He was the creator and sustainer of all. Nothing happens without his knowledge and he can use all things for his purpose and his glory. And that leads, secondly, to their conviction that the opposition they faced was no different to what had happened and continues to happen to God's people throughout the ages. They couldn't put their trust in other people, but only in God. They recall King David's experience uh, as they repeat in their prayers uh, the words of Psalm 2. And perhaps at this time, the words of Jesus stirred within them when he had said that those who were persecuted for righteousness sake would know god's blessing then thirdly they have the conviction that not only is god in control not only that he is absolutely sovereign but that he will intervene and in remembering the events of the crucifixion and resurrection they are declaring that god could overrule the worst that man had done and give his best we might not always see it from our perspective in our circumstances but god is able to bring good out of evil. And as they pray here, there is an ultimate strategy being worked out. And then the final conviction of their prayer was that God would confirm their witness with the continuation of signs and wonders. And in fact, they they pray for the Lord to continue the healings that had landed them in such trouble in the first place. It forces us to evaluate our own prayers, does it not? It certainly does, me and mine. And perhaps the words of Tom Wright are helpful here, when he writes that the church needs to learn in every generation what it means to pray with confidence like this. The church needs again and again that sense of God's powerful presence shaking us up, blowing away the cobwebs, filling us with the Spirit and giving us that same boldness. Boldness in proclamation because of God's presence and in prayer. And so the final question is, can we Be like the early church. Will we pray for boldness in our proclamation of all that we have seen and heard of Jesus and his history changing resurrection from the dead? A boldness that springs from our having spent time in his presence and resulting in the visible manifestation of his presence with us, leading to an even greater boldness in our prayer that we might continue our proclamation. And so as we conclude, let's just for a moment reflect back on that scene, that progression in understanding as Peter and John were brought before the ruling council and as that understanding dawned on the ruling council. They saw the boldness of Peter and John. They perceived that they were laymen. They marvelled at what they were able to say and do. And they realised that Peter and John had been with jesus this was a remarkable compliment indeed and the same can be true for us a christ captivated life enables us to live an extraordinary life we are not limited to the confines of our own intellect or talent the secret is christ in us the apostle paul discovered that and communicated the wonder of this idea of a transferred life, when he wrote to the Colossians about the mystery hidden for ages but now manifest in Christ's people. As he wrote, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Glory is manifestation, the making known of God's goodness. Christ manifests himself in us and transforms us into his own image the secret of the Christian life is not only that we have been with Jesus but that he is in us there should be daily amazement first in me in us and then in others at what we are able to discern and to dare and to do. Christ in us is the inner source of wisdom beyond human knowledge, discernment beyond comprehension, love beyond our cautious affection, truth beyond our experience. The deeper we grow in Christ, the more people will be forced to wonder. But most telling of all, there will be changed lives around us because of Christ in us. The apostles had the lame man as evidence that Christ had used them as agents of healing. And yet the greatest miracle is in the conversion and transformation of a person with whom we have shared the love of Christ. Is that, is that not we and our world needs at a time like this? It's certainly what I would desire for my life. Let's pray. Father God, creator of all things, sustainer of all things. We thank and praise you for your life in us, for Christ in us, the hope of glory. Lord, we long that we would be filled with your spirit, that we might proclaim your word with great boldness. Lord, that we would pray with great boldness. Come, Holy Spirit, fill us again, equip us for the task of taking your hope to a world broken, hurted, disorientated, confused. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, that through him in us, God's glory would be made manifest through the church. Amen.